Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, who's finally back after his long absence. Were you here last week, actually? Yes, I was. I was here last week. I just wasn't here on Sunday. Oh, it's just you've been taking so many sick days, I've started to... You start to kind of fade in and out. It's not so much six days as Wi-Fi days. Oh, a likely story. Yes, indeed. We all know that the infrastructure of rural Ireland is absolutely tip-top. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's up there with Mauritius. So, today is Budget Day, and you will be relieved that apart from two very short mentions, we're not going to mention anything about the budget. We may do some stuff on that on Sunday. But I did want to mention uh, something about the VAT reduction for the hospitality sector and something that i was looking at today so i had i received some bad news today michael what was that gary well you see gripped received a number of legal letters Mm -hmm. from a a small town in texas (laughs) (laughs) are you 24 hours from it i'm quite away tulsa i i am unable to pronounce it tulsa the the children's that uh has such wonderfully high ethical standards. They decided to send Gript a legal letter. They took some issue with uh, a couple of things, but in particular, a story I had written about Barbie Cardassian. And then when I started looking around, it turned out that all of the videos we'd done on this can no longer be accessed in Ireland due to court orders. Really? Yeah. And um, so we received that news, and it was... They were... um, You know when you get a letter from like quite a junior solicitor... And they feel they need to impress upon you in great detail how fucked you are. Yes. But the problem is, is I've received enough legal letters that I don't find that threatening. I just look at it and kind of go, you don't really know what you're doing, do you? But they tried, Michael. They they tried. And there was talk of contempt of court and that they would prosecute this both civilly and criminally as far as they could. And all that made me think is what right would these people have to prosecute me for anything? And why are these people talking to me about contempt of court? That's the business of the court, not these guys. But that unfortunately tied into the budget in that uh, today it was revealed that they're going to get an extra 61 million euro. So, Michael, I've got to tell you the the news combination of just a legal letter going, we will fuck you into the dirt and we have an extra 61 million euro. It's just not a great combination. Well, particularly if they're going to spend all 61 million chasing you. What did you do, Gary? Did you break into the offices at the middle of the night and steal these secret documents? All of this stuff that you published that has made you contemptuous of the court. Uh, By the way, might, might I say, I personally absolutely support the court in all of their actions and distance myself from any action that might be considered contemptual, contemptuous or contemptible. Oh, absolutely. Particularly, you know, I can only agree with you, Michael, particularly in their application of contempt of law, of course, which is kind of a law (laughs) and kind of a grey area and kind of just something the courts have given themselves and that if ill-wielded kind of makes the court looks like, uh, you know, some sort of petty tyrants. And effectively has no democratic or legal underpinnings other than a vague sentence. Well, you should make, to make sure people are nice and polite to the judge and respectful of the court. But, so, so tell me, what did you do? What, what, did you break in? Did you steal documents? Did you publish private documents? Was it all private documents? I opened up uh, Brave, which is the web browser I use, which is very okay. important to the integrity of this story. Right. And I typed in courts.ie. And I found information on that, and then I published that in an article 
along with some other information I was able to find from other sources. Predominantly, courts.ie. Correct me, now, I'm, I'm, amongst the many, many things I am not, I'm not a lawyer. But doesn't that mean that you found this stuff in what's called the public domain? Well, yes, Michael. And not just the public domain, but the court's website. So the court published this material. You then broadcast this public t- published material and this const- according to Tusta this represents a contempt of court. This represents a contempt of court. Now this strikes me as unusual in that generally the court tells you that you're in contempt of court. Yes, this um, is true. I've never had a state body reach out to me to tell me that this has happened, but they seem very unhappy about it. Now, this isn't the only legal letter they've sent that I've seen, Michael. Yes. And I will say they were a bit nicer to us than they were to other people. So, you know, we got that, Michael, and we thought we would do the reasonable thing and we would avoid any unnecessary aggression and just... We would, of course, scrap everything and hide any information that they wanted hidden. Like reasonable people who don't want to spend the next month in prison because of contempt of court charges. Yeah. It's not sounding like you so far, or, or McGurk, to be honest with you, but okay. No, no, it doesn't. That, that's because that was, that was an attempt to bamboozle you, Michael. And I was bamboozled. But can you, can you unbamboozle me on, on another subject? Because I, I, this is a genuine question, actually. Unironic and un, no sarcasm intended. What is their concern in this case? The person that you are writing about is an adult person now. Is that not right? Yes, they they are no longer a ward of uh, of Tulsa, Tusla. This is another fucking Cowan moment. This is another Barry Cowan moment or Barry Cohen moment. But yeah, it's just like I just can't do it. Um, but yeah, they're no longer one of their wards. They are an adult now. They remained in their care after becoming an adult because it looks like everyone realized how much of a danger this person was, and desperately tried to make that the case. But um, I don't see what their interest in it now is, because even if they are relating, referring to matters that happened when they were involved in the case, they're no longer involved with this person. So I have no idea what their um, what their actual standing here is. I will also I will also say this, Michael, and it's really petty, but uh, I think it's a sign of the quality of their legal representation. Uh, two things. They said that they wouldn't take any correspondence from us. So, basically, we have made our statement. There will be no questions allowed. Mm-hmm. But also, they sent us a, a letter and said we had to respond by a certain day. And then it doesn't look like they posted the letter until that day had passed. And they didn't send it registered post. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> That's not how this is done. Like You don't send, you, you send a legal letter, registered post. Yeah. You don't send multiple copies of it, and we got multiple copies of it. All exactly the same. Well, with some small notational differences, but the body entirely the same. Right. Uh, all of which were already outside the date where they said they'd get an injunction against us. So you're like, I mean, maybe you're just doing that so you can say we didn't respond, but I kind of just get the feeling that you're not great at your job. But the, this date has passed, and are, are you injuncted, or do you remain uninjuncted? I believe we remain uninjuncted. But maybe, you know, they're taking their time. These these things can take some time. And I think it's important to understand that sometimes people take a while to do things, which is not an understanding they extended to us. But, you know, Michael, it's important that we be the better people here. 
because we could hardly be worse. I'm struggling here to understand that, to use a phrase that you're fond of, if you're going to choose a hill to die on, is Barbie Kardashian really the hill you want to choose? Yeah, and I mean, the actual, how we actually responded to this was we wrote an editorial. And we just publicly put it up. We sent it to everyone on the mailing list. We're now talking about it on the podcast. And we basically said that, well, they didn't give us any reason why we had to abide by these things other than pointing out that there was a contempt of court risk, which we were aware of and doesn't seem to be any of their business. And uh, then they refused to take questions. So our basic gist was, well, this just looks like a state body trying to cover up something. But yes, the homicidal uh, person who claims to be a woman while also openly talking about how much they want to rape, torture and kill women is not a hill I would personally have chosen to die on. Although it appears I have chosen that hill to die on <laughs> in a legal sense. But that wasn't my choice. Yeah, this is the, th- the hill they've chosen for you. Well, I, 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 no, I assume that we're going to see, if we haven't already a plethora of editorials and think pieces across all of the Irish media defending Gript and the right to inform the public of serious public interest stories and that state-funded state, sh- state bodies should not be using their position or their, their, uh, their money to bully the media into staying silent on these issues. I'm sure the Irish Times, the Independent and the Journal and... The, uh, the RT will be all covering it extensively, if they haven't already. That would seem to make sense, considering how egregious this case is, considering it, the information was in the public domain. Yeah. It's not like I had to find anything. So, considering that, and considering the clear public interest and the threat to the public, you would think that they would see this as a threat to themselves, even if they hated us. And that they would then put forward something to say, like, you, you can't do this. Uh, I suspect that will not be the case, Michael. I am not the hopeful person that you are. Well, we'll see. I, 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 I think we may see some of the finest editorials written in the next two days. I shall be disappointed, saddened, Gary, indeed. Saddened if that is not the case. Well, I mean, if it does happen, I did see, I think, one of the news editors of the Irish Times say that the piece we had published was deeply transphobic. So if they do have to publish something uh, defending us, it will gall them deeply. <laughs> deeply transphobic yeah okay yeah so i i, I had a, a fun time because we've been aware this was coming down the track today or for a while or you know a possibility i just didn't mention it to my girlfriend because you don't want to mention these kind of things unless they're actually happening yeah thought, okay we've got the legal letter i mentioned it to her and i had to explain contempt of court to her and uh contempt of court is uh not a great thing at the best of times like i i I think it shouldn't exist largely in the way it's done, where it's effectively just a judicial discretion. But I, I, she did not take the whole, technically it could be an indefinite imprisonment. Didn't take that well, Michael, I've got to tell you. Really? So the idea that they could just throw you in, in the doll at the court's pleasure, or not the doll, in the joy, although which would be worse, at throw you in the joy at the court's pleasure on can you purge the contempt and quite how you'd purge this contempt i don't know just go back and take everything down and whip yourself public and say you're sorry and you didn't mean it is not really it's kind of a law it's kind of not a law it's mostly just judicial tradition it's frankly undemocratic and it has a tendency to make judges look like tyrants. Well, it, it may it may be all of that and more, Gary, but it is also something that, if you get on the wrong end of it, we'll see you or arse in prison. 
And I think that's really the only important thing we need to know about contempt of court. The philosophical, the philosophical underpinnings of it are fascinating to discuss, but when they're taking you away and putting you in prison, you're going, well, what do I do now? That's rather... That's, that's, I think, more of the tasty yeah, end of it. There was a moment where I had to explain that uh, I was talking to John McGurk about what could happen because he was the editor and editor-in-chief and it's my story and I'm one of the editors. So if anyone is going to get pinned for this, it'll probably be the two of us. Yes. And uh, I had to... He was like, oh, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I'm like, well, contempt of court. Month in prison without trial? Really? He's like, what? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's technically indefinite, but I mean, it wouldn't go, I, I imagine it wouldn't go more than a month, and we might get like a day or a week. And he's like, what? I'm like, well, that's... I don't see John doing well in prison. I'm just looking forward to a chance to improve my deadlift. <laughs> well, of course, yes, it's, it's, it's not, these are the places where people do... I mean, actually, I was looking at the British stats of, amongst prisoners of the amount who are claiming to be transgender. And how it's suspected that this is an attempt to get better um, facilities in the prison, better treatment in general. So it would actually be really interesting to be able to go in and have a chat with the prison population uh, about whether or not that sort of thing is happening in Ireland. And see if we'll likely see more of these cases in the future. So I could actually turn this to my advantage. Now I don't know what i do with the other like 28 days, but like I pace a lot anyway, I'm sure I'm fine. What if you decided to self-identify as a woman? I mean, that would be very funny. Like, for you to get into a women's prison, will you have to have done the paperwork or do you just have to self-identify? Well, you can do the paperwork in like two days. Yeah. Maybe you should have the paperwork ready to go. Well, what I think I'll do is I'll suggest that to John and suggest that he'll have a better time there and then I'll go to the men's prison. Okay. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll take half and half. I think that's fair. And then you can compare notes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think John would look far better than me in a dress. You see, I don't know, Gary. I don't know. He has the height, but he's, I don't know if he's the shape for it. I think he could be a striking woman. I think he could be striking. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's enough about my personal, uh, my personal concerns. I suppose one could say that there is an issue here of a state board seeming to largely overstep its remit and seems to sort of claim some of the powers of the court to itself, particularly where it said it would prosecute us, which I think is just a bizarre phrasing. And there may be a little bit there. Also the fact that they've managed to remove news reports from video upload sites on something which is legitimately in the public interest and no one noticed. It's also just a gross act of attempted censorship by a, a, a state body that has no business doing and getting involved with that. Yeah, I kind of, when I saw other people getting these letters, I sort of assumed they wouldn't be sent to us because I looked at the letters. They weren't really well done. It was by a very junior solicitor inside them. And, um, you know, when people start writing legal letters about how they're shocked and appalled and they feel this need to impress upon you how angry they are, that works for people who've never received a serious legal letter. And if you have, you're like, okay, you've got nothing. Um, we've had to deal with a couple of legal letters in our time together, Michael. We have. And my, 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 my little experience of lawyers is that the good ones, the serious ones, the ones you're frightened of, they don't use adjectives. They don't need to use adjectives. No, you get a very calm, very lovely letter that you 
get to the end of with absolutely no doubt that this is a very bad road to continue down. Yeah. <laughs> but no part in isolation looks unpleasant. Yeah. But the whole experience leaves you thinking, oh, shit, quick. And that was not, that was not this experience. This was a sort of a, ah, God bless them. They're trying. But no, then they sent it to us, so yeah, God knows. I mean, yes, they didn't send it in the correct day, and they sent multiple copies that seemed to be nearly identical, and they didn't email it, and they, lots of weird things about it that make me just think they, like, if you can't, if you can't mail a legal letter... How are you going to get far in the legal profession, Michael? Well, yes, it, it, that would I would have thought just getting it, getting it, getting into the post is kind of a prerequisite of success at, at the bar. But it also kind of undercuts their attempts to threaten because, like, we will prosecute you. Like, you can't even mail a fucking letter. Like, what are you? What are you going to do to me? Yeah, like it'll probably take it two years to find my address. Well, let's hope for. But anyway, that, so that was one point that you were the sixty-one million of the budget. Anything else in the budget that you you found interesting? Yes, there is. There's um, they they're going to bring the VAT on the hospitality sector down to nine percent. Mm-hmm. You might remember that that was something that keeping the VAT at nine percent was something that the restauranteurs had lobbied for for ages, and they failed in the last budget, and the nine percent VAT was removed. And now they've sort of looking at the hospitality sector and sort of going, oh, seems to just be falling over, nine percent VAT. The problem I have with this, and the reason I find it's funny, is most of these places can't open. So it's sort of like a man cutting your legs off at the knee and then telling you he's got you a lovely pair of shoes. You're at, it's, it's funny you should say that because I've actually been talking to people about that, the, the issue today because I had, oh, between today and tomorrow morning, I have, I don't know, seven or oh, online Zooms, interviews, chats, or whatever to do. Since I live in this highly developed uh, techno country and and I was staying in a place which is in Leinster and three miles outside a large town and have therefore no internet, I had to access internet. Now, normally you could say to hell with it and we'll go at a quiet time to the 24-hour McDonald's. However, McDonald's is closed, Gary, except for drive through So the only choice I had was to get into... The, I have to say, in fairness to it, very cheap uh, uh, hostel hotel that is available in Kilkenny. But it is the only hotel open in Kilkenny. So I asked them, why are you open and everybody else is closed? And they said, well, we're open for essential business purposes, which I kind of liked because I like the idea that I am an essential business. I think there's something vaguely comforting about the idea that at this stage of my life I now represent an essential business. I mean, it's solid, substantial. Yeah, solid, substantial. And breakfast included. So I was chatting and I said, well, is that like a government thing that they decided that every town has to have one hotel just in case somebody has to? No. The other, the other hotel, no, I'm in Kilkenny, so this is a tourist town, right? And there are a lot of hotels here. Um, I think two days ago... The, there was one hotel open. There may be one more open now. And he, I said, what well, could the others open? He said, well, in theory, they could. But the reality is, because their business is either international tourism, domestic tourism, weddings, or other types of celebrations, and that's all gone. You can't do any of that. And he said, if you open a hotel, no matter how limited the amount of business you're doing is, the staff, you have to have a certain amount of staff. And you just can't justify it. So effectively, even though in theory, the minister might say, well, actually, these hotels could open. The reality is they can't. 
they are effectively closed. They have been closed by the by the mixture of the the, the, legis the, the different elements of the legislation have come together to mean that these they have to close. So the what precisely is the benefit to a business to be told that okay you're closed and therefore you're not doing any business, but we're going to lower VAT on the business you're not doing to nine percent. It's not much of uh, comfort. I don't know how the, the industry has been pushing this. I mean, I did see the Restaurants Association say that they were terribly happy with the idea of off-licenses being uh, limited in some sense. Oh. And having their errors quashed. And I'm like, no. God, oh, lads. That's not a good idea. You don't want the government imposing sectoral uh, limited lockdowns at will because it's not going to take long for them to get back to you, lads. Once they do that, well, there's a lot of things that once once they break ranks, once they start to be disunity, you know, the disunity on this, they're lost. I mean, if nothing else, one of the things they're doing is they're conceding the idea that people consuming alcohol is one of the central problems in this. So, I guarantee, if if you if if you decide that people buying drink in the off licenses is one of the problems that's creating contagion then you're going to have to go back and say well let's look at how much alcohol people are consuming in restaurants so really all you need with a dinner surely is two glasses of wine no reasonable person two, michael well maybe one well we'll start with two because we want to be reasonable but certainly the idea that people are drinking a bottle of wine or having a, maybe having a gin and tonic before their dinner, a bottle of wine with their dinner, then maybe a brandy or a whiskey after dinner. That nonsense has to go. So suddenly these guys who have been perfectly happy to see the off-licenses have the legs cut from under them are being told, no, no, you can only have, they can only have a glass of wine and that's it. Everything else has to be soft drinks or water. And we will send the police in to check your your restaurants and your gastropubs to make sure that you'll have to keep your receipts and every table will have to have their receipts and each person will have to be itemized so that each table we know that oh nobody had more than one drink because if they had more than one drink they would obviously do what gary they would go out into the streets and lick each other because we know that's or, what you know maybe maybe shake hands with someone out of a longing for human contact well, oh yeah, shake hands. But those are basically the same thing, yeah. Basically the same thing. I think licking each other is more likely. So, it, also, what are they going to do? Are they, what's it? They're going to start by reducing the hours? Are they going to tell the supermarkets the supermarkets can't sell drink either? Are they going to make sure that people... Are they going to have it so that all across the border they're going to have a situation where they're, you're going to have army checkpoints on the back roads so nobody can sneak into into Newry or go across to Inniskillen to buy drink is that is this where we're going to go it, and of course nobody would ever think that there could possibly create a, a black market in the sale of alcohol that would uh, come from people wanting to drink and not being able to buy a drink or that maybe consumers, if they're young consumers, might decide that alcohol, okay, that works, but there's other things we can take. Ah, jeez. 
no, I think the restaurants, the restaurateurs should be sensible about this and saying, no, well, no, we we think that people are should be treated as reasonable, and that if people that uh, if people are drinking alcohol in our establishments, they should be allowed to drink alcohol in their own homes as well. Or is that the idea that the only <laughs> are we going to go down that if you want to drink, you have to go to a government-controlled, licensed establishment? Is it, what is it? Is it Sweden? Where all the off licenses are run by the government? Uh, possibly. Uh, Sweden, I think, does that. I know Canada had a tradition of doing that also. Certain states in Canada, anyway, used to have a fairly controlled. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's Sweden. You you have a like a. It's a government controlled chain of off licenses, but apparently Swedes just go over the border because it's ridiculously priced. But on the Canada thing, that just reminds me of. Uh, when the federal government got involved, sorry, not the federal government, one of the the um, state governments got involved in the sale of cannabis and lost money. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's brilliant. That is absolutely that was, fantastic. That's impressive. Like you lost money selling weed. Also, when you think the Swedes go to Denmark in order to save money, if you could do... You could save money by going to Denmark and buying anything in Denmark. That tells you... What the price? What prices are like in Sweden? I don't. I remember years ago reading an account of an of an actors, a bunch of English actors going to Canada for a Shakespearean festival. I think there's a place in Canada called Stratford. They have, I think it's still going quite a famous Shakespearean festival. And because of the laws in Canada, and they had all these liquor stores which were only owned owned by the state. Now things have probably changed and moved on in some way. Anyway, so. The locals in the town, small town, all signed up and registered as alcoholics so that they could get extra booze to give the actors, which I thought was a wonderful act of human kindness and generosity to feed these notoriously thirsty actors. The whole village registered as, a, the whole town registered as, as alcoholics. It's... I will give you a factual love about the Swedish alcohol system, Michael. Go on. So the government doesn't allow them uh, to prioritise any beer over another. Right. Okay? So, because of that, they don't refrigerate any of the beer they sell. Because if they were to refrigerate some of the beer, they oh. have to refrigerate all, all of, the, of beer. the beer. Yes. And yes. that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> no, that's what wouldn't make sense. Yeah, that's that's the thing that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. They also don't run promotional leads, but that I think that was my favourite part of just. Well, legally we just don't uh, we don't refrigerate alcohol. We don't refrigerate your beer. See, that's society where they take equality seriously. They don't want to punish any beer. You know, if you're not if if I can't chill every beer, then no beer gets chilled. And that isn't that an interesting metaphor, actually, for the for the for the socialist interventionist government. If you can't have air conditioning, nobody gets air conditioning. If you can't have penicillin, nobody gets it. I mean, you, you sort of joke, but do you remember when people were talking about how terrible it was that Ireland had a, a two-tier health system? And yeah. And that they, we had to get rid of private health care. Doctors were making this argument. Yes, yes. And you're like, so effectively your argument is that it's unfair for anyone to get better health care and therefore we have to end it. And they would say yes. And then you sort of go, okay. So you're, you, as a doctor, are fine with the idea of people suffering 
so long as everyone else suffers as well. Yes, we're all in it together. I just, I would have thought you would have been like, anyone not suffering is a victory. Apparently not. But I want to, um, I want to open the next section, Michael, with a, a quote, apparently one of the favourite quotes of the person we are going to be talking about. And I think yes. we, we have to contextualise this person. They have been successful despite immense adversity, Michael. Yes. Uh, in a democratic system rigged to ensure that men come out on top, they have lost many, many elections. Right. But somehow, Michael, they have always had the grit to pull themselves to the top. Sounds like a, a hero to me. Oh, a hero of the people. Uh, maybe not of her staff, though. So here's here's a quote. Every time a woman stands up for herself, without knowing it possibly, without claiming it, she stands up for all women. That's, of course, a quote from Maya Angelou. And that quote was put up for International Day of the Girl, which was, I think, three days ago? Sunday, maybe? By Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee. Right. Now... Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee has a bit of a problem, Michael. Which is? She didn't bully her staff badly enough. (laughs) Okay, choose your words carefully, please. She's not alleged to have bullied her staff badly enough. (laughs) Not carefully enough. Go on. How many hills are you going to die on this week? I wonder, Kavanagh, how many? So, tell me the story. So... A former employee of Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Clifford Lee took to Twitter on, I believe, sorry, the day after International Girls' Day. Would have been perfect it was the same day. To say that the worst time of her life was working for a senator. She said that she still had PTSD (laughs) after it, that her confidence, her self-work, her self-esteem was beaten to crap. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, like you get in Iraq. Yes. Okay. So, she's working in Baghdad. Okay. Or the senator's and office. And then, of course, she, she didn't name the senator, but then people looked into it. By which I mean, we looked into it. Um, by which I mean, John McGurk and I looked into it. Yeah. Uh, although John McGurk beat me to the close of the story. But it was good fun. It was a good fun of an evening. Um... And it turned out that this girl had never worked for any other senator than Lorraine Clifford Lee. So that kind of narrowed the field down a bit. That narrowed the field substantially, Michael. You're sure. Have to say you're Sherlock Holmes on the side, really, aren't you? <laughs> because what's it Sherlock Holmes says, Gary? When you have excluded all the other possibilities, whatever remains, no matter how unlikely, must be the truth. Now, this is actually, we, Cripps has reported on um, the senator before, yes. during the last election, actually. I think we may have been a part of why she didn't win that one. We, uh, what were the comments that were alleged to be racist and deeply offensive? Stuff like, oh, I only go into Aldi to see the common people. Sort of good traditional blue shirt tweets that just didn't play well with the Fianna Fallers. Surprise, surprise, yeah. So she, she failed in that election. She just she's failed. No, in no, no, Gary. The people failed. And then she tried to win in the Shannon, and she the people failed again. Right. But a Most, more specific group of people. The than county council, county councillors failed. 
And then there was that bite. Has she lost three elections in the last year? <laughs> Possibly, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't say lost, but been le- been less than optimally successful. Yeah. So, and she anyway, she's in the Shannon now. Was that a t- T-shirt? Was that was that a T-shirt nomination? I, I I honestly don't know. That was a T-shirt nomination. Um, for reasons, I mean, we couldn't possibly comment on Michael. I, I, I'm sitting here trying desperately to think of something that you would feel that you couldn't possibly comment on, and I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, go on. Well, and then, you know, we found some other people who made certain comments about how Clifford Lee was a difficult and often abusive employer. And uh, I believe the phrase from one of them was, I used to thank God every day it wasn't me working for her. You know, these are the kinds of things that very often you hear from people who are dealing with strong women, Gary. You know, if this was a man, they would be saying, okay, he's difficult, but he's demanding. He's a perfectionist. It's a tough environment, but, you know, you have to you know, deal with it. And I think what we're looking at here is the common garden misogyny of the heteropatriarchy. There have been a, the general approach to this has been to say that, you know, well, it was, um, it was terrible that this happened. And the, the problem was that um, Lorraine Clifford Lee looks to have bullied this girl. But as I said, Michael, I have taken a different approach to this. Lorraine Clifford's Lee problem is that she didn't bully this girl so badly that this would never come out. And there are certain things, Michael, you've got to go all the way if you're going to start down a certain path. So you think that you, what you have to do is get them to the point of selective mutism. So they just they find themselves incapable of speaking. And do you remember a couple of years ago, Michael, when, uh, shall we say, an elected representative threw a staffer out of her car when it was moving? <laughs> I have no recollection of that at all, and I will deny any. That's the level you need to be at. Right, okay. Legitimate fear for your life. They'll (laughs) never talk about it. Yeah. I can't say anything, or else there might be a lump hammer coming my direction. I I loved when that happened, because it was sort of a refuge in audacity moment. Like, you hear about the bullying and the harassment, but they threw her, they, they threw the staffer out of a moving car. And you have to sort of go... You can't do that. But then immediately you sort of go, but why did they throw her out of a moving car? So you can't even really be angry because it's just a bizarre thing. It's, yes, it's not common. It's not, God. I mean, the bullying things is common, but the throwing out of a moving car, that was notable even Mm. then. It was. But that's, that's where I think Lorraine Clifford Lee needs to put herself. She needs to develop a more forceful personality where this will never happen again because people will be so terrified of the consequences they won't ever talk. I mean, it's either that or become a nice person. It's, it, it's a transformation whichever way you're going. I mean, this is not a person who's made friends on the way up. Well, it's been... A, it's Yeah, God. Maybe she'll make friends... Well, I've got to say on the way down, but there's no... That would be to assume that there will be a way down rather than a, a, a continual vertiginous ascent. The thing about Lorraine is Lorraine is going to be held up regardless of what Lorraine does until John Lee dies, and possibly for a while after that. You think? I think that until the her husband, who is the editor, or the political editor of the Irish Examiner, which 
would seem to be Miha Martin's local national paper. Ah, uh, I think she's pretty safe. Um, I have uh, I have no insight into their into their into their their marriage or the Chinese walls that operate at the bre- at the breakfast table there. So that just it just seems like something a politician, a politically savvy man such as Miha Martin, might take into account when appointing someone who cannot win an election into a Senate seat. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm stuck here on the phrase a politically savvy man like Michal Martin. I'm well, sca- it's all I'm, relative. I'm scanning desperately there for sarcasm or irony. I don't know. I think I'm struggling with the notion that Michal Martin, uh, the man who brought Fianna Fáil to 9% in the polls, is that politically savvy. Then again, as you say, the, the examiner, uh, which used to be the Cork examiner, which was commonly known in Cork as the paper, would indeed be his local. And, you know, you might as well, you want to keep in with the local rag. So that's a, a, a fairly basic principle for any politician, I suppose. You don't have to be, um, I'm desperately trying to think of it. You don't have to be Bertie Ahern to know that's the way to do politics. No, and Michal Martin has won an election, which puts him heads and tails above everyone else in this story. Won? Well, yes, he's won many elections. Whether one could construe the last general election as a win, hmm. it's a win in the same sense. And uh, for the classical fans on the, on the podcast, <clears throat> it's a, perhaps a, a win in the same sense as the victory of King Pyrrhus against the Romans. We shall see how it all turns out. Anyway, that's uh, that's just a nice heartwarming story about a woman trying her best. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> you obviously enjoyed telling. Because uh, you like you like you like the uplifting stories, don't you? I do. I mean, I like the fact that she's trying to bully these people into submission, but you know she's got to put out all the stops if she's committed to advancing her career. Like another couple of leaks like this, and she might be damaged in some way. Mm-hmm. But I think you know if she can just keep them in total fear for their life, uh, she may have a you know a good future ahead of us. Fair enough. I'm sure she's listening and will take. Take your advice on board. Uh, might be mentioned to her by one of the other Fianna Fallers. <laughs> just might, yeah, just might. Yeah, I, I, was I telling you, I recently had a conversation with someone who told me a senator they'd been talking to had said he'd been listening. And internally, I was just going, have I called that person a cunt? <laughs> That's not a question you want to have to ask yourself, really, is it? I'm sure it was justified if I did. Politicians are notoriously thin-skinned. I would like to hope also, Gary, that there are, that the number of people in the Oireachtas that you have used that epithet about would be fairly small. I'm not sure if I've ever referred to an elected representative as a cunt, but it was certainly something I had to consider. <laughs> and did this person indicate to you how the, this particular senator had reacted to the podcast? No, no. Well, he did afterwards, but at that point he had just said that he had listened to a particular thing. Okay. And I was like, uh-huh. Ah, uh, okay then. Okay. That's the problem, being very blunt about things, Michael. Mm. Occasionally you run into the people you're being blunt about. Yeah, like a brick wall. Yeah, yeah, and then they're not happy to see you. Not happy. And then you, you get to realise why journalists are nice to politicians. <laughs> Part of it is just because you have to run into them, and then you're like, well, I heard you said this about me. And you don't want to have to go, well, in fairness now, you wear. <laughs> a bit. But no, it's all good, good, wholesome fun. And uh, we wish Lorraine Clifford Lee better luck 
in bullying her people in future. Well, you do. I, 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 ref- I, I absolutely, as usual, Gary, will uh, will dis- detach or disengage myself for all and any comments that might be perceived. Unfortunately, I think this is like a have you stopped beating your wife situation <laughs> because you don't wish her well in bullying them. You're just wishing she does it badly. You're not wishing she doesn't bully them, Michael. Oh. You're still supporting the bullying. You're dragging me down into the pit of hell with you, aren't you? You're grabbing me. You do like to do this. If you're going down, you're bringing the temple with you. Everybody's gone. Take take everything with you, Michael. If you're going down, kill everyone with you. Burn the gaff. Absolutely. Because if, if it's just you, you're losing. But if you take everyone else with you, at the very worst, it's a draw. <laughs> yeah, no score draw. Anyway, moving along. Yes, you wanted to talk about uh, Catholic schools. Well, just I just wanted to pa- a, 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 a mention on Passant. There are a couple of things I thought were interesting about the reporting of it. As usual, the story is very often more about the the, the reporting than the, than, the, than the story itself. But also I wanted to say something which will not maybe go down well with some of our listeners. An observation, shall we say. Secondary, state secondary schools, this is the phrase they're using, are to phase out a range of Catholic influ- influences, such as mandatory graduation masses. Now, I'd have to say, Gary, I'm sceptical about how many mandatory graduation masses there are in the country. I mean, how many schools do you think out there are sending letters out telling the, the students that they have to attend mass at graduation? Only the good schools. Only the good schools. Well, I, I suspect the, the, the schools that are to this are uh, the notion that anybody was being forced, and it's mandatory, sorry, that there are graduation masses at the end of every year or graduation services every year. I'm sure there are many schools, but they're the mandatory. I'm very sceptical about. The display of Catholic symbols are going to be removed. Now, the rules are going to apply to the, the schools run by the state's education and training boards. Now, these are the schools which would have been formerly what we used to call the techs, the technical schools, the vocational schools, right? And they, the, these schools have have always been uh, regarded as multi-denominational or interdenominational. They, they, they were never, they, they weren't part of the voluntary sector. Now, I don't actually have a particular problem with the idea that since they are, in fact, uh, multi-denominational schools, they are within the state sector, that they they should fall within this, uh, the, the, the idea that you don't have religious symbols. But... <laughs> There, there's a quote in the, in the Times, which I think is is kind of a peek into the into the soul of the way this is regarded by certain individuals pursuing uh, maybe a, a further agenda. The Times that I'm quoting here says, an unpublished document on core values of these schools, by the way, I'm fascinated that schools have core values, has raised concern within the sector that Catholic practices are normalised in many state schools. Now, what what do you, what does that mean, Gary? I'm kind of fascinated. Catholic practices. What would that be? What are Catholic practices? Eating fish on Fridays? Blessing your transubstantiating things? Transubst- yeah. Transubst- I don't know, is that a is that a practice of Catholics? Is priests do it on a Sunday's mass, but I, genuflecting, saying the angelus, they are normalised. That's the other thing. They're normalised. Does that not carry a certain tone, Gary, that they're being normalised? These are fundamentally strange, weird, 
esoteric, possibly unsavory things, they're being normalized. May because if they shouldn't be normalized, well then, this because why? Because there's something about them. It's it's, it's curious. Now, it, it one of the things it means that the schools that symbolically represent religious celebrations would have to ensure balance. Now, here's this lovely notion of balance in Ireland. So, for example, when David Quinn is invited on to the news to speak on behalf of all the Catholics of Ireland, for example, as he occasionally is, or some bishop or some priest has done. Now, we know that from the census there are X number of Catholics in the country. We know from the surveys that maybe... What's the population of the country these days? Five million? Five million, somewhere in that region. Around a million of them are practicing, right? On a fairly regular basis. Um, of the five million, around three million seven hundred fifty thousand, for around four million of them identify as Catholics. So against to provide balance, they put on what's the name what's the chap's name? Nugent. I, I should know this. I interviewed you, him. You know the man, he's a nice man. Uh, Michael Nugent. Michael, Michael Nugent. Nugent. Perfectly nice man. I have no problem with Michael at all. But like, there's around 2,000 people, who are, if that, who are signed up members of the, of the Atheist Association of Ireland. It's an odd form of balance is all I mean. So, for example, if you have a schools with displaying a, cr a crib at Christmas, we'll also have to display sim Islamic symbols for Eid. I don't have a particular problem with Islamic symbols for it, but it's, it's this it's like it's this idea of diversity, isn't it? You have a school, and maybe there are seven hundred kids in the school. Now, this of this. And by the way, I don't think a crib is particularly. I mean, it's originally Saint Francis, so Francis was a Catholic. But I, there are cribs. Anglicans have cribs. Methodists have cribs. So it's, it's I would say more a Christian thing than a than a specifically Catholic thing. You have seven hundred kids in the school, and of whom. 690 are Christian and 10 are Muslim. So you have to have balance. So you, you, you have to give this sort of equality of parity, equality of esteem to both sims. It's an odd form of... But really, there's something else going on here, which is, which is not behind this. We have seen a decline in the last 20 years, which has been going on for starting for 20 years, maybe before it, of what's called the voluntary, the voluntary school sector. Now, the voluntary school sector are those schools which would have an explicit religious uh, character to a spe specific denominational character. So none those schools run by the Loretto or Mercy, nuns or the Christian Brothers of the Presentation, the Mars or whatever. There's a voluntary, the voluntary sector. Now, as the years have gone by, those schools have tended to be amalgamated and rolled in very often with uh, vocational schools. And some of them end up being denominational, some of them multi-denominational, whatever. But the reality is, there is, it seems to me, and even though the department may not say so, there is an active policy against the voluntary school sector in this country. We have, you, I, I know that when we had the discussion before and lots of discussions over the the, the we want shall we say the jigging the rejigging of the of the of the results of, in the living search part of the discussion was about deprived schools and funding in schools and equality and all that but the reality is voluntary schools are discriminated against when it comes to funding when it comes to capitation when it comes to infrastructure they are not wanted 
But it's also worth point observing that every that to my knowledge and I, my knowledge is limited, and I'd very much like to hear from anybody if they have a different take on this. That certainly at the level of secondary schools, and possibly I don't primary schools, it may be different. That when new secondary, when a, a town reaches a certain population and a new secondary school opens, I don't know in the last number of years of anywhere where a school with a Catholic or indeed a Christian ethos, a Church of Ireland or Methodist ethos, has actually applied for the to be the man to be the uh, patron of that school. It tends to be either. Uh, county councils say community schools are educated together for example uh, often apply for that so if we are seeing a diminution in catholic education in the country at least part of that has to go back to the passiv the passivity of the catholic church and also catholic laity and speaking to our listeners out there that some of whom may be uh, serious catholics that they have to start to reflect you can't you're going to have to do something about this yourselves i also just and this is again the last thing in passing i think gary you both of us we've talked about this before we've, we've seen documents and reports where they talk about indoctrination in schools of catholic values or catholic beliefs or whatever can you can you think of a less successful indoctrination program anywhere in the world than Catholic education has been in Ireland in the last 30 years? Uh, nothing comes off the top like, of my head. It's It's been pretty bad all around. If these people are in the business of indoctrinating children, they're bloody bad at it. On the basis of the, re the results of various referendums and pieces of social legislation and just general behaviour and mass attendance, etc., etc., etc. The notion that these schools are out there baiting a Thomas Aquinas and Vat the First Vatican Council into these kids, but whether or not one would maybe like to believe that they were so is certainly not true. And that seems to be a trend in a lot of countries. I mean, I think the big thing now for a lot of the religious conservatives, or even actually just a lot of the more liberal folk I know who want their children to have a really good education, is to pull them out of religious schools and put them into what are called classical education schools. Yeah. Which are basically the west the the western uh canon yeah the classical curriculum classical curriculum the great works the great novels the classic canon i mean one of the things about these schools for example is you're not going to have denominational religious education so you're going to have the only kind of religious education is going to be something which is, would 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 be approved by the department of education and what that effectively means is you're not talking about re as traditionally understood but rather uh, you've, it's a, a comparative religion. Now, I've not against teaching comparative religion, but there has to be an explicit recognition that this is not religious education. It is, if you like, it's religious anthropology or it's sociology of religion, but it's not religious education because it's not coming from a perspective of belief or faith, which is fundamentally a, it's a fundamentally different thing. It's teaching you about the sociology and the practices of different of people and and different religions, but it's not about it's not teaching the values of a particular religion. It's a completely different thing, and I think there's just this. It, this is just. I mean, I know a lot. Of, there's going to be a lot of Catholics who are going to be pissed off about this and annoyed. The reality is, ultimately, this is a, a sign of their own passivity. If they want to do something about it, Ireland is unusual, Gary, in that at least. 
that we can still do this. I like United Kingdom, for example. If you want to, say you want to have a Gale school, you want to have education through Irish for your primary school. If you can get enough parents with enough kids to get together to do it, you can do it. And you can get the kids in, then the department will come around, they will do an inspection, they say, okay, we're going to recognise you as a school and you're going to get capitation. And you can get into the system. You can have Muslim schools you can, if you want. If there was enough Quakers to do it, they could do it. You can do that here, but you have to choose to do it. They ha I think Catholics in Ireland are going to have to get used to the idea that the state is no longer their friend. And the expectation that the state is going to do these things for them. And the Catholic, well, I want, the hierarchy will have to do whatever they have to do. That's their own thing. But anyway, that's just a story in passing I wanted to just note. Um, I just, and I just repeat again, I just love that phrase, the Catholic practices. It's like something, it's like something you used to read when they're talking about the, the Inquisition, you know, Catholic practices, something deep and dark and nefarious. You certainly wouldn't want your children. I always do like these stories when they're talking about the need to remove indoctrination of children. Yeah. Uh, need to uh, remove religious icons and things like that on that line. I, I, it just reminds me of, you know, the, the sort of line that, but of course, liberalism isn't a, an ideology you can oh, indoctrinate it into. No, no, no. That's absolutely neutral. Absolutely, that's, that's just the way things are, Michael. That's science. Yeah, that's that's that's. Yeah, I love that. That's well, I'm doing science here. Uh, that's the absolutely. That's the implicit thing of all these. And I think sometimes they're unconscious about it. They're absolutely unconscious. I, I've told you before. I mean that that story. When, uh, these two, there was a, a professor of philosophy over from Galway, with a wonderful Germanic accent. He was talking to him at one of my lectures afterwards. And they were ta he's talking about his experience at Oxford where they didn't teach Marxism because he was informed Marxism was a system in Oxford. We don't teach systems. And he went off into fits of laughing and he said, yeah, yeah, because of course liberalism is not a system, which himself and Harry Macaulay, Dr. Harry Macaulay, thought was hilariously funny. But it's absolutely true. It took me 20 years to understand what the joke was. But this, there is this perception with these people that liberalism is this like neutral default position. That if we could scrape away all of the, the barnacles of prejudice and superstition that we have, we would be left with 19th century British liberal ideas. We'd all turn into Jer Jeremy Bentham or John Locke or no, I mean, John yeah, Stuart Michael, Mill. That is something you can take some small amount of enjoyment in. As the world and all of its systems burns to a cinder, yeah. that brief moment when it all falls down, where the people behind it burning will realise that there are things that were there before that thought, yeah. and there are going to be things there that are after that thought, and some of those things are not your friend. That's a very dark thought to end on, but maybe that's a good point to end. Darkness is not. The winter is coming. Yeah, you know, as, as I said, Michael, if you die, it's a loss. If everyone dies, it's at worst a draw. <laughs> anyway, I... Uh... We shall be back on, well, I say we should be back on Friday. If I have access to uh, Wi-Fi, uh, we shall be back on Friday. If we don't, Gary will be back. Sunday, I'm confident that there will be Wi-Fi. Hopefully by next week, the floors of my house will have returned to their normal state and I shall be able to live there once more in my happy state. And therefore, all these sick days that Gary is 
telling me I mean, I'm running out of sick days. I, I very soon I, mean, I have to present my medic my doctor certs short clearance. I won't get the lavish payments that we otherwise would receive for these podcasts. Will uh, so I, I will have to try and get back on schedule. I've been trying to keep the podcasts when you're not here light and airy, but I've realised I have absolutely no ability to configure what is light and airy to the general public. Yeah, well, just keep talking about burning down and killing everybody as being a draw, and that I think you're going to be like, pretty. You're going to come back one day, and you're going to be like, Gary, what was that episode on? I'm like, oh, like I, about how there's no hope, and let's all think about suicide now. And you know, it was, it was nice. It was uplifting. <laughs> Yeah, like basically, did, like did was, the listeners find it nice and uplifting, <laughs> presumably. Presumably, it's basically like the first chapter of a Camus novel when he wasn't in a good mood. Yeah, yeah, I'd just be like, you know, there's no hope, and yet there need not be despair. <laughs> hope. <laughs> <laughs> You're very much in the Greek mode, aren't you, Gary? I think a lot of people don't get that. You know the old story of. Um, What's the box? Pandora's box. When Pandora got them and all the evils of the world flew out and they looked into the box and what was left. The only thing left in the box was hope. And a lot of people in the Western world, of course, think that that's a good thing because they think it's hope is a good thing because hope is a Christian virtue. Of course, for the Greek, hope was not a good thing. Hope was just a way to deceive yourself in front in the front of a terrible situation. And rather, you should abandon hope and embrace the truth of the awful, the awfulness of our lives. And I think that's pretty. That's 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 a Gary kind of a feeling, isn't it, Michael? If you had to walk around and every time you saw a swan, you have to worry if that swan was a god who was going to rape your wife. That would be hard to hope. Like that's not a situation for hope. That would be a kind of apparent. That would be a scary world to live in. Uh, indeed, and let's face it: what you were worried that you, the the god you were worshiping gods that were eating their own children. Yeah, I mean, so you have Zeus uh, as a swan; he raped someone. As a bull, he raped someone. Once, as I think, as a as wind. Didn't Kronos grow Zeus in his leg? Yes, he did. That seems like a weird choice to make. I mean, you're the god of the of the universe. And you grow, and then Zeus kills Kronos, or or does he imprison him? It it doesn't end well anyway. These these Greek things rarely end well. But anyway, before we get too deep into that, I think we'll say uh, somebody will be here on Friday. Hopefully, both of us. And until then, I wish our listeners well. And don't listen. Don't take Gary too seriously. You know, he's only here for entertainment value. Oh, an ant was another one. Oh God. It goes on. Yeah, and uh, there was a cuckoo bird. He was also fond of turning himself into someone's uh, husband who had gone on a trip. Yeah, you see, I do, that to me sounds more like a wife's excuse than, a, than actually what the god was doing, but we leave that alone. Yeah, but Leda was a, southern, a queen in southern Greece, and Zeus raped her by taking the form of a swan. Yeah, she we... delivered eggs as a result of that. Yeah, we, we, we know about Lily because, of course, she was uh, in a poem, what Yeats wrote, that used to be on the Leaving Cert. Yep, and one of those eggs became Helen of Troy, and things escalated from there. Yeah, escalated. Anyway, again, I will desperately try to close this out and say, bye-bye, mind yourselves, keep well, and avoid swans. Even the non-divine swans. Evergreen advice.
All the best. <laughs> bye bye.